Well, good morning. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. We're learning a lot about that story of Israel and how they were called out of darkness into the marvelous light, out of slavery into the promised land. And we're seeing a lot of parallels between their experience and the experience that we have had as believers, as people of God called out of slavery of Egypt, I'm sorry, a, a a, a slavery of sin from an Egypt under a pharaoh who is God's enemy. Through the gospel, we have been transferred into a new kingdom. And uh, at this part of the story, we're being introduced to a lot of regulations, a lot of laws. A lot of this has to do with, okay, if Israel's going to be a people called out by God to be a holy nation, well, how is that nation going to operate? Like, what are their laws going to be? What are the rules going to be? And as we've seen, that God is giving these laws so that Israel might be a holy nation, that they might live differently and they might worship differently. But we're also noticing in these laws that they're forward pointing to the Son of God, so that God, centuries beforehand, is intentionally getting the hearts and the minds of Israel ready to receive the Messiah. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at laws about property and making things right, that God cares about making things right between you and your neighbor. We couldn't help but notice that those three categories of scenarios where things fell short, were sent into the picture, were either theft, death, or, sorry, uh, the theft, death, and destruction of property. And that sounds familiar to us because, as Jesus says, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and to destroy. So even all the way back, generations before Christ would come, God, through these laws, was implicitly whispering, my son is coming, my son is coming. And then uh, this passage actually seems to repeat some of that, doesn't it? Thinking about those laws of property, what do we do if my ox falls into a pit? Do you remember that one, for example? How are we supposed to make things right? And here, in uh, actually verse 4, we can jump down to verse 4 in chapter 23 of Exodus. This law feels like it's just a repeat of the laws that we looked at about two weeks ago. Let me read it, verse 4. If, you're, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey goes astray, so there's the livestock, the property, you shall bring it back to him. If you see a donkey of one who hates you lying under his burden, in other words, you're walking along the road and there's a donkey and it has all this weight on top of him or her and uh, it's going to die from exposure if it stays put under that weight, what are you supposed to do? You shall refrain from leaving him with it, the burden, and you shall rescue it with him. So you should rescue that animal. So this sounds familiar, right? Property rights, making things right. But did you notice there's a major difference here? So why would God not just put this law back where there's others that are like it? Well, he's doing something intentional here. Little by little, line upon line, he's revealing something about himself to us, and it's very subtle if we just blow past it. But the difference between this verse and the way that this law is structured 
And the previous laws that we saw in Exodus 21 and 22 become apparent to us when we revisit some of those laws. So let me read at least four of those again for us. So this is from two weeks ago, Exodus 21:33. When a man opens a pit and the donkey falls in, the owner shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner. So who's the owner in this situation? You dig the pit, a donkey falls in, who are you paying the money to? Your neighbor, right? Exodus 22:5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, he shall make restitution for the best of his field and his vineyard. Again, who are you making restitution to? Your neighbor. If we were not sure about that, actually verses 7, 8, and 9 make it very clear. Verse 7, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief's found, he shall pay double. So this law is explicitly to a neighbor. And then verses 8 through 9, if the thief is not found, the one whom God shall pay, uh, the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So one last time, neighbor. Up until this point, laws about restitution, about making things right, have been with your neighbor, with your neighbor, with your neighbor. Now, let's go back to this seemingly repeat law in verse 4 and see if we notice the difference. If you meet your enemies, ox, or his donkey, going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you laying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So what's the difference? Before, Israel was being told, you need to love your neighbor well. And now, Israel's being told, you need to love your enemy well things are getting increasingly difficult, if we're honest, to obey. This reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, talking about the law, you've heard it said in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, that's never true. I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain to the just and the unjust. In other words, God makes provision for you and for your enemy, for the just and for the unjust. For if you love those who you love, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, then what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, perfect in what? In the context, Jesus is saying you need to have a perfected love because the Father's love is perfect and a perfected love is so powerful it transcends even our own hatred of our enemies. That one day you will see, Israel, God's love so powerful that he comes not only to redeem you from your shortcomings, but to redeem the entire world, to bring salvation to even those who would consider themselves their enemies of God. So God is preparing the hearts of Israel to see a love that transcends hate, even of enemies, even of those who hate them. 
so that they would be keenly aware that God has enemies, even among their own people, but he loves them anyway, and he's willing to sacrifice himself for them. So this law is not a repeat from two weeks ago. It's not even an elaboration. This is a peeling away of another layer of how different God's people are called to be and why they're called to be so different. I think there's another reminder too, or another passage that seems a little familiar to us. Read verse nine, for example. In verse 23 of Exodus, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because we read pretty much the same thing last week in verse 21 of chapter 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So in short, God's saying, don't take advantage of a stranger. Remember, you were strangers too, and you were taken advantage of. So don't forget that. There's a slight difference here, isn't there? So in chapter 22, the prohibition is against wronging and oppressing sojourners. And remember, we talked about how ancient Near Eastern cultures also had laws that promoted hospitality, but the difference between Israel's reception of the law and the laws of their neighbors was that the laws of their neighbors were just rules that they were supposed to follow. But every now and then, Israel is given by God the explanation of why you ought to be hospitable to your neighbors. They're let in on the why. And in verse 23, we see this why being expanded. So the law is, don't oppress a sojourner. Why? We learned last week, it's because you were sojourners too. And then here in chapter 23, we're told even more about why you ought to not oppress a sojourner. Initially, it's for the exact same reason, right? You were sojourners in the land of Egypt, but there's a subtle and significant difference here. Did you notice God adds something? Don't oppress a sojourner. You were like them once, so you know the heart of a sojourner. You know their fears. You know what keeps them up at night. You know what brings them anxiety. You know their thoughts. You know their hopes. You know what it's like to feel perpetually imprisoned. You know what it's like to feel oppressed, rejected, disconnected. You know what it's like to feel opposed. You even know what it's like to feel the violence. You know their heart. And I think this is extremely important detail because what it shows us is that God does not want his people to leave Egypt and to experience blessing and freedom in their new land and then turn around and look with disdain and distance with people who have been where they have been. And I really believe the same is true for the church. Because once we were not a people, but now we are a people. And when you place faith in the Lord Jesus and he regenerates your heart and he gives you newness of life, you begin this journey of sanctification, conforming yourself more to the image and likeness of Christ, really understanding what it means to be in the world but not of the world. And then there's a new temptation that enters into our life that as the Holy Spirit creates in us a new and a virtuous way of living, we might turn around and look at people in the world 
in an attitude of this positional judgmentalism, forgetting that we were once where they are now. Now, there's a difference between yearning for and desiring to return to the world and a recognition and an empathy of knowing the hearts of those who are in it. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're experiencing. I know what your temptations are. I've been there. Your story is similar to mine, but here's how it's different. Once I was not a people, and now I am part of this people. God never wants us to forget how far he went to redeem us and how far by his spirit we've come in sanctification. Because the second we do forget, then people become these things. The world becomes this thing that we have to run away from and hide from and not engage in. And God says, no, you were where they were. Empathize with that. Be firm in truth, and yet in gentleness, draw them to me. And the same goes with us today. We know what it's like to be sojourners in sin. So in a sense, even though the law is getting more difficult to keep, it's actually becoming richer and deeper and more meaningful. It's becoming thicker because we're being, we're, we're, we're being let in on more and more and more of why God tells us to do the things that he'd like us to do. And this is really how God reveals himself. There's this aspect of revelation from God that is just this blunt reality of who he is. He's holy. He's powerful. He's all-knowing. He is sovereign. And yet at the same time, there is this sweetness to God's law, this uh, richness that stems from his personal character. I think this is one of the reasons why the psalmist can say in Psalm 19, 9 through 10, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There it is, the black and white bluntness of the holiness of God. And yet he doesn't stop there. More are to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than any honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In other words, the law is not only blunt reality, but desirable. It is true, it is valuable, and it is something that we ought to want because it reveals who God is to us. He desires his image bearers to flourish, and he loves us enough not to let us have our own way. He points us to himself, the source of all that is true and right. God's not merely telling Israel like, hey, look, I rescued you, you owe me this, do this, this, and this. And when they ask why, he could have just said, you don't need to know why. I just told you to do it. He has the authority to do that. But that's not what he's doing in his revelation of his law. He's graciously inviting Israel not into, not, not into just the what of his covenant with them, but the why. Why have you ordered your law this way? Live differently, worship differently as a holy nation because once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know the heart of the sojourner who are not my people. See, I think part of what makes the gospel not only understandable, but desirable, 
is that it embodies this message of both God's holiness and his love and what those two are doing to redeem a broken world. This is why he's very, very concerned here in this passage with not only reminding them of the laws that he's given them, giving them extra, the wise, but in specific, what are we supposed to do as people when we encounter opportunities or temptations, I should say, to bring about injustice, especially for the powerless? What are we supposed to do when we're faced with the temptation to lie, to take a bribe, and to push people further into a position of powerlessness. So God gives laws according to these concerns in verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 8. It says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far away from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are right. Now, when we read um, those types of laws, they can come across, uh, even as I'm reading them, as like distant, a bit cold, maybe your mind gets trapped in one word here or the way that it's phrased there. So what I want to do is I want to read a paraphrasing of these two sections of this law to see if we can't capture the thrust or the heart behind what God is telling his people. So this is a very approachable, down-to-earth paraphrase of this section of scripture. Don't repeat malicious gossip. And don't join with wicked people who live by lies just to appease the masses because that's a one-way street to injustice, especially for the powerless. Don't play favorites at the expense of the marginalized. And when it comes to legal disputes, don't interfere with justice. Steer clear from false accusations, especially when one's innocent life is on the line. Remember, I'm the final judge, and do not think that I'm going to let you slide. And don't take any bribes. They blind you, and actually, in the end, they undermine justice. So, way to just give it in the most plain English. That's what God is, is communicating to his people. So again, at one level, this simply just seems like it's an elaboration of a law that we already have. Uh, you shouldn't spread a false report. Sounds a lot like, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, right? So we've already seen the foundation for this, these laws in the ninth word or the ninth commandment. But here's the thing. What this law is helping us, the, later in Exodus, what these laws are helping us understand is who exactly is our neighbor, because if I'm an Israelite and I'm looking for ways to get around the law and I come to rule number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, I'm going to be like, well, that's good for the Smiths and the Johnsons, but everybody else is fair game, right? So are you saying that I can bear false witness against other people who don't happen to have the very similar addresses to me? And God, is, over the past two weeks, has been like, no, because the sojourner is your neighbor as well. And then we just saw even an enemy is your neighbor as well. 
There's nobody outside of this definition of neighbor that you get to lie about. Again, the law is getting harder to keep and impossible to accomplish. But the good news here is that for those who are in vulnerable positions, God is also teaching Israel to protect them to prevent injustice from visiting them because we see kind of two elements in this chunk of the law that are really important. The first one is an element of lies or injustice. And then the second is the element of the powerless or it says the poor man. God is very concerned that truth would reign in Israelite culture so that the oppressed would acquire justice. So if I had to kind of like capture in one sentence what's going on in this set of laws, I would say in essence, Israel is forbidden from bearing false witness for the sake of the poor for two re- by two reasons, one, or two ways. One, by refusing to participate in injustice, so you see it happening and you're not gonna join in. And then two, by refusing to cause injustice, so you're not gonna be the origin of injustice, especially against the poor man. So in refusing to participate in injustice, God forbids Israel from joining hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness, that's verse one. Verse two, they are not going to bear false witness. And then in refusing to cause injustice, God's forbidding Israel from perverting the justice due to your poor. That's verse six. Verse seven, you're not allowed to make false charges, especially when somebody's innocent life's on the line. And then verse eight, you're not allowed to take bribes. So once more, God cares about protecting the powerless. He cares about protecting the marginalized. And we should too. There's an obvious lesson for us here, isn't there? I mean, there's a thousand obvious lessons here for us. Uh, We've already talked about, in the previous weeks, uh, caring about justice. Not justice according to our terms. Not justice according to the terms of the culture, but justice is laid out to us by God. And we should care about that. We should be a people of justice. But here, what's interesting is there's this element that overlays caring about justice uh, that is truth. So we should care about justice, and we should also be people that care about truth. That's why this section starts with, you shouldn't spread a false report about your neighbor. And that's kind of what I want to hone in on here for a second, because that's very timeless advice or command, really, in a pretty timely manner, not to spread a false report in a day when doing so is as simple as tapping a button. Send, forward, repost, retweet. Uh, How many of us have done some false report spreading. (laughs) Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. We just don't know. And what's crazy is that today we have the power to spread false reports in a little sphere of our own culture and maybe even within our own sphere of influence that echoes so loudly that it affects, it reaches the ears and eyes of more people, I'm willing to say, than, than even existed in Israel at the time. So what I mean by that is, if you have a smartphone and you have a social media app, you could potentially speak to more people than existed to hear that law when God gave it. So that should A, be frightening and sobering, uh, and B, call us to really want to be a people of truth. Because in a sense, we, we, we have an added responsibility with this power of communication. Every single person in our culture now has a microphone. And we are nodes in a network of information that spreads. So 
if we were to apply what Israel was told back then to today, I think one of the lessons needs to be like you need to be a good node of information to prevent the spread of false records or false statements to the best of your ability. And I think this begins by asking ourselves, before we click post, before we click submit, before we click send, before we hit the retweet icon, asking ourselves, is this true? Because that's not the question that we typically ask. The typical questions that we ask ourselves in those moments is, is this validating? Is this reassuring? If I throw this out into the world and more people believe it, is that more affirming for what I want to be true? Is it confirming for what I believe? But God is asking us not to ask those questions. Not that they're not important, but that the most important question is, is it true? I'm sure you can think of a handful of examples of spread of false reports in digital spaces, and what God is asking us to do is, you're my people, don't participate in that. Because it may lead to injustice in ways that you can't even fathom, that we can't even understand. So if we are worshipers of the way, the truth, and the life, then we need to be known as people of truth as well. And not to uh, join hands in the cause of injustice. This is another piece here. There is just no excuse that any person who claimed God's name would knowingly play a part of bringing injustice to somebody in the world. So we should be uh, championing justice in, in all arenas of life. Again, not justice defined by the world, but justice defined by God. But these things are hard to do. It's hard for Israel to do. It's hard for us to do. Why? Because it requires humility. God is asking Israel to do things that necessitate the outlook and the care of neighbors over self. That it's easy to join the crowd and to lie and to take a bribe and to oppress the powerless, but it's hard to dissent from the crowd. It's hard to tell the truth. It's hard to turn down bribes, and it's hard to advocate for the powerless because you have to die to yourself to see the powerless neighbor the way God does and to care about them so deeply that you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of yourself to see them flourish. That's hard to do. And it's even harder. God is making it even harder by saying you don't just have to sacrifice yourself a little bit for your neighbor's flourishing, but you also have to sacrifice yourself a little bit for the sojourner's flourish, for the foreigner's flourishing. And now I'm asking you to sacrifice a little bit of yourself for the flourishing of your own neighbor, your own enemy, the person that hates you. This is why I cannot help but once more see Jesus in this passage. I mean, think about it. Didn't Jesus himself experience everything that these laws set out to prevent? Every single one of them. First, Jesus was innocent, so there's no reason to bring any kind of charge against him in sin or crime. Peter says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was, he de uh, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judged justly. So Jesus cares about truth and justice. But second, Jesus was poor. He was born in a poor town to poor parents, and by the time of his ministry, he didn't have a, an address to go home to, right? 
said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air, uh, they have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What a profound statement for the one who created it all. So how do you reconcile that, right? How can Jesus, on one hand, be the one through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were made, and yet he claims he doesn't have a place to call his home? How can he be poor? He wanted to be. He's intentionally living a life of faithfulness to God and perfection in his moral and ethical life to the law and a life of poverty, a life of marginalization, of powerlessness. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, that's humility. That's the humility we're talking about. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How did Jesus get there? His humility took him to the cross. So how did he get to the cross? Well, look back at the laws in Exodus 23, 1 through 9, because all of them were there. This is fascinating. Men conspired against Jesus, and they broke every single one of these laws to usher him to the cross. That's one of the greatest ironies, I think, of Jesus' uh, Sanhedrin trial, that the men who were entrusted by God to know, to live, and to represent the law broke all of the law so that they could kill the lawgiver. Think about it. When Jesus was taken to the Sanhedrin, he was taken there by people who were participating in injustices being done to him and who were causing injustices to be done to him. That by participating in injustices, the enemies of Jesus joined hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. There were people at the trial who were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they may put him to death. That's Matthew 26, 59. So we know we don't have anything on Jesus, but if we can get enough people to make up lies about him, then maybe we can execute him. They're breaking the law. Then people did start showing up bearing false witness against Jesus, which you're not supposed to do according to 23.2. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree, Mark 14.56 says. So there's people participating in injustice against Jesus, and then there were people that were causing injustice against Jesus. That's the whole point of the faux trial of the Sanhedrin at night. That trial was illegal. They were making false charges about Jesus, especially when his innocent life was on the line. One guy finally stood up and said, I heard Jesus say that he's able to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. And that's what stuck. And everybody in that room knew that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus can't destroy a temple and raise it again in three days. That's absurd. He was talking about his own body. They all knew that, but they didn't believe. And this is finally, they had some kind of evidence that they could execute an innocent man. And then, the last element here is in verse 8. God says, don't take a bribe. And while the Sanhedrin trial was going on, one of Jesus' own disciples had in his pocket 30 pieces of silver. Every single one of these laws to protect the powerless, Jesus was willing to be under as they were broken so that he would be led to his death. Jesus allowed himself to experience all that God had prohibited Israel from doing. 
Why? I'm fond of saying when it comes to God's laws that behind his negative prohibitions are hidden positive permissions. So what I mean by that is this. Behind the law, thou shalt not covet, is the positive permission, thou shalt live a life of contentment. And behind the law, thou shalt not commit adultery, is the positive permission, thou shalt enjoy a flourishing life with your spouse. You shall not have any idols, you shall not have any gods before me, positive permission, you shall worship me and experience eternal life. So when God gives a negative prohibition, very often, tucked behind it is the positive permission. In fact, it's just easier to tell you what not to do than it is to tell you about the infinite possibilities of what you can. So if that principle is true, which I believe it is, how would we then apply it to the laws that we're reading today? Well, if Israel was prohibited from bearing false witness at the sake of the poor, then wouldn't the inverse be permission to proclaim good news to the poor? Let me say it again. If the negative prohibition that God is giving to Israel is do not give a false report, especially if it has something to do with the poor, then the positive permission that Israel is giving God, or that God is giving Israel, is that you are allowed to proclaim good news to the poor. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because in the Old Testament, Israel longed for the coming Messiah, who would bring good news to the powerless and tell them that God's justice is coming. And in the days of the prophet Isaiah, this was made very clear in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah spoke that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to, all, to comfort all who mourn. So this is a promise that God is giving to his people through his prophet. But the problem was this. The year of the Lord's favor was very far off from Isaiah's day. Eventually, Israel is going to be taken captive by Babylon, and then when they return to Babylon, they're going to face conquering after conquering after conquering. So it was always meant to give Israel hope, to look forward that God's plan to redeem his people wasn't going to fail no matter how bad things may have seemed. But what exactly would that redemption look like? Go back to the Gospels. The Son of God has come to the world. The Lord Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry and he returns to his hometown, Nazareth, where a lot of poor people lived. And as it was a custom in that day, he went to a synagogue service and somebody asked him to read that day's reading. So back then, if you were involved in the life of the synagogue, there were very simple structures. You just sat along the side and there would be one scroll that would have the Hebrew Bible. We call it the Old Testament on it. And they would open it up and it had a set reading for that day. If you've ever seen pictures of these scrolls, you'll notice they're like in blocks of big chunks of paragraphs. And you were to begin reading at that day's and not stop until you get all the way to the bottom of that day's. You couldn't read the days before, you couldn't read the days after, that was it. And it just so happened 
that when Jesus went to his local synagogue, he was handed this scroll and he read from Isaiah 61. The scroll of the prophet was given to him, Luke 4 records. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And verse 22 says, Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now this is really odd because that's not where you were supposed to stop reading. You were supposed to continue reading for a few verses more. So what Jesus is implicitly telling people in this poor town is that his authority exceeds even that of God's word. So some of the people must have been thinking in their back of their mind, like, who does this guy think he is, God? And Jesus is like, yes. <laughs> and I've got some good news. All the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're in shock. They're stunned. And he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everything that you were anticipating and looking forward to, the good news being proclaimed over the poor, is beginning to become fulfilled. And all of those negative prohibitions that were pointing your heart towards not spreading false reports to the poor, but actually giving good news to the poor, that's becoming true. Because in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, with that brings the ultimate advocacy and justice to all the poor and powerless of God's people. And the only way this could have been done is through an ironic twist, perhaps the most ironic twist in redemptive history, that Jesus turned our willingness to break his law into a power that breaks the law's power over us. His path towards the cross was paved with our sinful refusal to seek justice for the powerless. But in his resurrection, Christ won for us a new life and secured for us a new heart, one that desires what he desires, or should, which is to proclaim good news to the poor. You shall not spread a false report, especially at the detriment of the poor. That's what the law says. Why? Because you shall proclaim good news to the poor. Good news, the phrase good news is actually what gospel means. Gospel is an old English term from two words, God or good spell, which means good news. Negative prohibition, don't lie, especially if that lying is going to bring injustice to the poor. Positive permission, you're in my family now, God says, time to spread good news to them. So how do we respond as a church to this great invitation to the Great Commission? The law through Christ is saying to us, you shall proclaim good news to the poor, especially those who are poor in spirit. God says that those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. So one of the questions we should ask is, as a church, are we doing that? Are we spreading the good news? Yes, we need to prohibit ourselves from spreading a false report, but we also need to encourage one another to spread a good report, to spread the good news, to spread the gospel. 
And that begins by spreading the gospel to yourself first. When you're talking about spreading the gospel, when you're talking about evangelism, one of the most neglected people in your life is you. You forget to spread the gospel to yourself. It's, it's crazy, but um, Paul, when he's writing uh, his, his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, um, he, he wants to talk about the resurrection. And he begins it with these words. He says, uh, I remind you, therefore, brothers of the gospel which I first preached to you. That's crazy to me because he goes on to talk about the resurrection. So, of all the events in human history that people would forget, why would it be the one where God becomes a human, lives sinlessly, dies, and rises again? Like, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot that happened. And yet, that's, that's the core and exclamation mark of the gospel. And Paul finds himself needing to remind a church of the resurrection, to remind the church of the gospel. We need reminding of the gospel every single day. You need to preach the gospel over yourself every single day. Where did you come from in accordance to the gospel? Where are you now in the gospel? Where are you going in the gospel? What has Jesus done for you? What's he doing now? What does he promise for you in the future? Every day, spread the gospel to yourself. Second, are we spreading the gospel uh, to our families? One of the ways that scripture instructs families of believers to live is by bringing them, the family, up in uh, the uh, disciplines and instruction of the Lord. And this isn't merely just a set of rules. We should um, be moving beyond that framework, right? Laws in the Old Testament are not just God says it because I say so. He says do it because it's going to cause you flourishing in my glory and here's why. Okay? So when, when Paul says, uh, bring your children up in the disciplines and instructions of the Lord, um, he wants you to explain the whys behind that. Not merely just a set of rules. Why? Uh, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're supposed to love your neighbors yourself. You're supposed to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart Jesus resurrected from the dead. And in part of spreading the gospel in the family is, is going into those whys. Well, why do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why should I love my neighbor as myself, right? Um, my daughter's almost three, so we're getting into the why phase, right? If you've had a three or four or five-year-old, you know the why phase. And it, it's just starting, right? So I was like shaving last week, and then she comes in, she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm shaving, baby. And she's like, why? I was like, because I got to get rid of the hair on my face. Like, why? It's because hair grows on my face. Why? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) But your children are going to be implicitly asking you as parents the whys of the gospel. We should be like this because we're a believing family. They might not ask you why, but you need to tell them. Because the revelation of that why it's kind of like that glue that sticks us to obedience in the disciplines and the instructions of the Lord, Paul says. So uh, is that one of your habits of your home? Is that one of the gospel habits that you practice? Here's one that's very practical. If someone were to ask your child who loves you the most, what is their answer going to be? It's a hard one, right? Because you want it to be daddy, you want it to be mommy, but it can't because that's not true. God loves your child more than you. 
He's loved your child before, more than you, before you existed. He's loved your child more than you before the foundation of the earth. Like, that child's not yours, it's his. And so does your, does your kid know that? I'm trying hard, even at this early age, to communicate that to our daughter, and I'm not doing a very good job, because uh, I'll ask her, and then we do kind of like a little like toddler catechism on the way to school in the morning, sing songs about who's God, creator of everything. And then um, I said, okay, who loves you most? Right, this is like three or four weeks ago. So Whitney, who loves you most? And she was like, she looked out the window and she's like really pensive. And she's like, ah, Chewbacca. <laughs> and I was like, no, baby, remember? <laughs> I said, Jesus loves you most, God loves you most. And she's like, oh. And I was like, okay, there's the light bulb. I said, so, so who loves you most? She's like, Chewbacca Jesus. And I was like, what? A lot of untangling to do. Turn off Disney Plus for a little while. <laughs> Give that a break. But, uh, but it's hard, even as a dad. Like, I, when I say, like, who loves you most? Do you know what the answer I want to hear? Daddy. But it can't be. It has to be Abba. Has to be your father. So, what are the gospel habits that you're you're getting getting you're leading your family in? How are you teaching the gospel to your children? I think one of the best ways to spread the gospel in your family is to live it out before them. Of course, there's words. Of course, there is teaching them. But what about living it out before them? What about repenting from sin, confessing Christ's lordship, demonstrate what it means to be humble before the Lord? If you repent in front of your kids. I guarantee you they're not going to see weakness, they're going to see Jesus. And this is really, really hard to do because you don't want to admit that you're a sinner in front of your children. But you have to because it's reality. <laughs> and what they need to see is mom and dad take this so seriously that they're willing to confess to me when they have sinned against me or they've sinned against each other or they've sinned against our neighbors and then I get to see what happens next. Restitution restoration, grace, mercy, growth. What are the gospel practices you have in your home to spread the good news? I think also uh, prayer, right? One of the seemingly, the, the seeming throwaway verses, there's no such thing as a throwaway verse in scripture, but, but one of those that you see in 2 Timothy that seems like, why would you put this in here? Um, but I'm glad you did, Paul, is when uh, Paul is, is writing to his protege, Timothy, and Timothy's a young guy. Uh, he's uh, becoming a pastor, and from a, from a distance, uh, Paul is um, mentoring him, discipling him, and uh, he gives us a little bit of insight into Timothy's conversion, which is really cool. And this insight is this. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That's awesome because what we see is Timothy is not a pastor without grandma and mom preaching the gospel over him in his youth and teaching him and praying for him and developing him into a man of God. And I, I even sense like this, this Paul was certain of the faith of Grandma Lois and your mom Eunice, and I'm sure it's in you too, Timothy. 
So he knows for a fact that these women are are faithful and that they're living it out in their home. Uh, So we should follow their example. Live the gospel, love the gospel, let your children learn the gospel. And and then finally, are we spreading the gospel, uh, obviously, are we spreading the gospel to our neighbors? And that's probably what you hear of first when you think of evangelism. Um, Do your friends know that you're a believer? And if they do, could they articulate any of your beliefs? If I was to go up to you, talk to you, talk to one of your friends who's not a believer, said, did you know so-and-so? Like, yes. Like, cool. And you know they're a Christian? They're like, yeah. It's like, tell me some of their beliefs. What would they say? Well, I'll be honest. Some of my friends that are not believers, I'd be like, actually, I'm going to step out for a second. <laughs> right? Because I haven't done a good enough job of communicating that to them. I think that's a good question to ask. Somebody knows I'm a believer. They're one of my friends. What if somebody else comes and asks them about my beliefs? That will tell you if we, you've articulated or communicated them well. And are we aware of those moments where strangers, where we meet strangers, sojourners, spiritual sojourners? Uh, Are we aware of those moments that the Lord has ordained that we might spread the gospel to them then? Those seemingly random times when you just happen to go to a well and there just happens to be a woman of Samaria who is spiritually oppressed there. Those intimate, precious moments. Um, One of the things I would encourage us to do is ask the Holy Spirit to tap us on the shoulder and be like, this is one of those times, right? You're at the well. You don't know this person's story. I do. I want you to communicate the gospel to them. Um, And I say that because of what Jesus said, quoting Isaiah 61. How did he, how did Jesus Uh, empower his ministry of spreading good news. He says it's the spirit that empowered him there, right? Um, The spirit has anointed, the spirit has empowered me to proclaim good news. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, do you not know that you are God's temple and the spirit of God dwells in you? The same Holy Spirit that empowered the Son of God to proclaim the gospel in his earthly ministry has taken up residence in you by faith. Ask him to make you aware of opportunities that you can emulate your Savior. Let's be the kind of church who sees God preparing hearts for his Son and one that recognizes his mission to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit. To know that we have been invited and we have been commissioned into joining God's mission (laughs) of ensuring justice and drawing people to himself through preventing the spread of false witness and by participating in the spread of his gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that even in uh, texts that just seem like blunt, cold rules about what a society is supposed to do to protect the poor, we still see the incredible workings of your Holy Spirit generations in advance preparing hearts to receive your Son. And so, Father, as people who are on this side of the resurrection looking back through your law, I pray that that's how we would see it not simply as negative prohibitions to keep us from sin and injustice, but positive permissions to join you in your mission to bring about your glory through the preservation and distribution of your word 
of Christ's gospel, that it is finished. And we may come home to him. Father, we thank you. We thank you for his sacrifice. And it's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen.